you for listening to Radio Never Apart. I'm your host, Jordan King. Welcome back, returning listeners. And if you're listening in for the first time, welcome and thank you for tuning in. Radio Never Apart is an interview feature podcast started at the beginning of 2020, which launches monthly as part of the Never Apart online magazine and has featured some incredible people involved in various aspects of nightlife and nightlife culture across North America. This has included performers, DJs, drag performers, event organizers, and so many more. In this episode, I speak with DJ G Love of Vancouver, BC on the West Coast of Canada. G, as he's known to many people there, has been part of countless events in recent years. And he claims to have DJed almost every single venue in the city at some point in the last 20 years. Thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today, G Love. Anytime, anytime for you, Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> we have known each other. We we go really quite a ways back. I realized, you know, recently, like, wow, we've we've known each other for many, many moons, G. Yes, for sure. I would probably say at least uh, fifteen years. <laughs> the two mid to early two thousands in Vancouver. I think that's where we first crossed paths in Vancouver nightlife. So so tell tell listeners a bit about yourself. Who who are you, G Love? am I? Well, first of all, I'm human. <laughs> Second of all, um, I'm an artist, uh, a DJ, uh, a promoter, uh, and uh, a lot of people don't know uh, that uh, I'm an account executive uh, by day. So just like a little bit Clark Kent of the business world, but uh, gave that up about two and a half years ago to focus uh, mostly in my art and my DJ career. Wow! So you you were able to step away from from having a nine to five day job for real. And I mean, I was uh, blessed and lucky to do that. Uh, I was working for a company that, which is really hard to find, uh, understood who I was as an artist and didn't do anything to kind of stop me from um, from you know going to shows in Portland and and uh, throwing shows here too as well. And and I was kind of. Um, doing both of them for a very long time, um, you know, my day job and uh, my nightlife. And it got to the point that um, I wasn't being able to focus on either one of them. And when I sort of saw that I was getting really busy on, uh, you know, DJing, um, I just sort of said, hey, you know what, I think it's time. It was a very scary job. <laughs> a lot of my work colleagues are like, are you crazy? What are you doing? Um, and, and I was just kind of like, bye, Felicia. Like, I think at the end of the day, I think, they, you know, some people think, you know, art is a hobby. So I was like, no, this is actual career. So that's incredible. That's incredible. And yeah, that definitely did come up in, in one previous interview, for sure. My, my conversation with Troy Jackson last summer was this idea that, you know, and especially within Canada, because Canada is, you know, globally, comparatively speaking, a, a sort of like s- smaller country, despite its physical size, um, mm-hmm. that it's, it is a difficult go as an artist and as a full-time creative here. So a lot of people do assume, I think that it's, oh, it's this, this is your hobby. This is your side thing, whatever. So, uh, I commend you. That is incredible, Jean. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And let's dial it back to where are you from originally? I was born in Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, grew up uh, mostly, actually, in the West Coast, so uh, Vancouver, Surrey. Wow, Hamilton. Still town. <laughs> so you had a presence in Vancouver as well, though. You weren't necessarily, like, you didn't spend your whole growing up time in Hamilton? 
No, I, you know, my mom was a bit of a gypsy. Um, and so we, I'm sure this is a story for a lot of people. Um, you know, we, we moved around a lot. Um, so, but my mom for some reason, I think she fell in love with the West Coast. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I think it was one of the reasons why I ended up staying here. Um, but then she ended up moving back to Ontario um, as I got older. I think it was in grade 11, grade 12. And, and that's kind of why you may have seen me kind of go back and forth because I have a lot of my family that are still in Hamilton and Toronto. I think my sort of earliest memories of, of you arriving on the scene, the nightlife scene in Vancouver are, yeah, I mean, definitely the early 2000s. Uh, you know, the House of Venus parties at yes. Sonar and Shine. And um, I mean, you're you're a very, very distinctive personality and you're so warm and effusive and smiley. And as long as I've ever <laughs> known you, you've had incredible shades. That is part of one of your sort of signature aspects of your look. So you're very memorable. So I really can think back to those times and think, of course, yeah, I remember you being there at that party or, at, you know, in that at that yeah. event. Well, especially because in Vancouver, there's not many black people. So definitely <laughs> um, I, I stood out, especially wearing uh, those sunglasses that uh, I'm uh, known for too. As well. Absolutely. And, it's very accurate. And it's something that I want to talk about. I mean, let's maybe discuss first just your sort of like journey in Vancouver's nightlife. But I definitely want to talk about that because you're right. Vancouver, Canada as a whole, um, again, comparatively speaking, does not necessarily have a huge black community in the same way that like Toronto or Montreal or other parts of the country do. But let's get to that. So um, talk about your, I guess, sort of like your first forays into Vancouver nightlife. Um, well, to... Like, I think, oh God, it's like so many. Um, I would like to say, like, sort of what you were sort of talking about in terms of early 2000s. Um, it would have been probably late 90s for sure. Um, I bumped into a night called Rehab, uh, which, uh, of course, House of Venus um, was doing uh, at Celebrities. And that was sort of uh, some of my introduction. Um, and then, to be honest, if you want to kind of go way, way back, um, I used to sneak into the bars when I was a kid. I was about 16 or 17 years old. And, wow. um, I, yeah. So, and at that time, you know, I mean, that's, I mean, especially, I mean, now, I mean, you wouldn't be able to do that because everybody's asking for ID. But back then, it just sort of seemed to be a lot more loose. And it was so much easier back then. It was so much easier. I used to have a laminated fake ID. That was like laminated. You could peel off the lamination and then you could like change up the numbers and all the, do all the stuff yourself. Or like if you knew someone who had a laminator, like it's, it's so <laughs> surreal to think back to. So I remember those days with those fake IDs. Weren't they amazing? Because everybody was like talking about a high school, like, where did you get your son? And yeah. And it was sort of like, it was like the thing. It was a jam, you know? And, uh, you know, sort of got introduced that way. And a lot of it was because, um, you know, when we were kids, they used to have like teenage clubs, uh, like changes, mm. palladium. Um, and they used to, and there was uh, one in Surrey. So I got introduced to a lot of kids all over, like Vancouver, Coquitlam, and all that stuff. And uh, I ended up getting introduced to uh, a couple people that were from Vancouver. And because they kept on partying downtown, I just sort of followed lead, and that's kind of how I was end up sneaking into bars. And one of the bars actually was called um, was called uh, Club Dynasty, which is kind wow. of funny because. Um, that was the old Twilight Zone in Gastown, for those that may have known Vancouver back then. So I literally got, like, thrust into, you know, a little teenage club, you know, in Surrey, where everybody's, like, boopity-boop dancing, to straight up, you know, nightlife, which was, blew my mind. Um, but that's sort of how I got introduced uh, to the club scene was to 
that club and then various uh, venues uh, throughout the years. Um, I'm just trying to think now, like even Club Xenon, which used to be an after hours in Yale Town, which when remember Yale Town was sort of not Yale Town. And um, Rehab in 1998, I think it was when Michael Venus and, and House Venus was doing that night, Celebrities. And then um, a weird kind of twist of fate uh, was the Odyssey nightclub to just mm. around that time. And I think the reason why I was so attracted um, to that particular sound, especially celebrities, um, and the Odyssey was that growing up in, um, just like I, was, I think I was telling you, like, you know, my mom was a gypsy going back and forth. And so at one point, um, when I did go back to Ontario, I think it might have been like 19 years old, uh, 1920, um, that's when house music was sort of kind of mm. in the scene. The only place that was sort of playing the house music, um, actually the only couple of places that were playing the house music at the time um, was uh, Celebrities at Rehab and then the Odyssey Jewels because he was getting music from Toronto. And I mm. believe that, um, I want to say Shaggy Horse, um, Graceland's. Wow. So you actually, you were going out even before I was in Vancouver, because I moved to Vancouver in 1999. And then I, I mean, I dove in pretty quickly. I was also going out with fake ID that first year. (laughs) 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 So I was not yet legal drinking age. So yeah, so our past probably would have started to cross, you know, pretty much right away. You've been so involved in the last I mean, so many years. Like when you sent me your bio, I was actually really blown away. I mean, I knew you'd been extremely involved in the last few years, but I, you have been doing so much more even than I had any like notion of. <laughs> but like, so when did you when did you first start DJing? Um, I I think I started DJing. Um, it would have been wow. I, I want to say ni- like 99, 2000 and, um, is when I kind of started DJing. Um, there was a DJ named Jan Solo. Uh, he was a hip hop DJ um, and someone that was sort of in the scene for a very long time. He, uh, we used to talk about DJing all the time and thank God he, was, he literally lived across the street from me and he was like, okay, well, if you're really serious, uh, let's do this. And so he, that's kind of like how I started to DJ, learned on vinyl. Um, he basically taught me through the whole gamut of like, um, you know, beat juggling, hip hop, house, and all that stuff. And then I think my first real gig uh, would have been at Jupiter, which was on Davy Street. Of Jupiter course, Cafe. yes, the Jupiter Cafe, wow. Yeah, Jupiter Cafe, and then, uh, and then it just kind of went on from there, <laughs> as you saw from my bio. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I, of course, like I have many memories of you DJing, like with DJ Leanne and and different parties over that time, sort of in the two thousands and stuff. But, um, but yeah, I, I have to admit, I didn't realize it was even like even predating that time that I was I was starting to go out, um, and and so like you know I was extremely involved in nightlife until up up until in, in Vancouver nightlife up until about twenty ten. And then, as you know, I mean, my life has taken me in a few different twists and turns, but that's sort of a point in time that I was, I was, you know, going out less and like less involved, um, you know, and especially in stuff that was going on downtown. As we both know, Vancouver, I think sometimes fights against this reputation of being a no fun city. And, and I, I'm always sort of like, you know, I, I try to clarify that whenever that conversation comes up, because I think part of the reason why Vancouver has that reputation and still has it 
is because it is very difficult from like a permits standpoint to like open a new venue or to make certain things happen. Like logistically, it's just kind of tricky in Vancouver. But when I, when I look at all the stuff that you've been doing, I'm like, well, clearly you are making all kinds of stuff happen. And so like, can you, can you speak to that at all? Like what's, what's your sense around this? Definitely. Definitely. It's interesting that you, you say that because, you know, um, Back at the time, you know, um, you know, when Michael was doing, Michael House Venus was sort of doing uh, quite a bit of parties, uh, it just seemed like the, the Vancouver uh, in the early 2000s, I would say 2000, maybe 2005, 2006, it seemed like Vancouver was a really open to, to, to having all these different events. And I don't know if it was the internet, because I mean, a lot of people sort of blame the internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, terms of just like people stop going out they prefer to just get out you know on those apps um which you won't mention or should be mentioned anyways and just the whole of you know idea of meeting people uh in spaces which i think might have been driven to just hope for hookups sort of went away and i don't know if it was just venues but i think like i said i think it's just internet venues um weren't really they weren't really kind of supporting the artists. I almost kind of felt like this promoter kind of vibe sort of came in and it was all about like how many numbers you can kind of get in and the sort of club culture sort of changing. I think because, and especially because a lot of it was dictated by Gramble Street. And and I think it was dictated because that's what people knew, that's what people saw. But they didn't realize there was an underbelly and an underground scene in behind that. And I think a lot of people had to, and my, like including myself, had to go and find places or, you know, speak to venue owners that were really willing to and open to, you know, a creative idea and a, a sense of community versus, you know, bottom line, well, how many numbers are you going to get in? And the whole EDM kind of swing sort of came in. And I kind of felt, and I think a lot of people felt like, where do I see myself? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And because of that, I think a lot of people that weren't in the know um, just stayed at home, and there was a bunch of us that were still trying to sort of, uh, you know, keep it alive uh, through various venues. And um, it's interesting that you said said that because a lot of people would have just gave just given up. And because um, you as you're, you know yourself as an artist, and a bunch of us that are artists that have this passion, that passion doesn't go away, and that's what kind of inspires us to think outside the box. And while that reputation was happening with No Fun City, because I mean, trust, I, I was, I was preaching to the choir too as well. Uh, but there were people doing things. Um, I think at the time there wasn't like this big push with Facebook, um, where people went to go to the events. Um, and then you know there wasn't really kind of um, local publication media to help support that underground scene. Because there was then people wouldn't say that there was no fun city. It's just that the people in the know didn't know. Yeah, and that's and it's interesting that you you sort of, you, you bring up a couple things for me. I mean, one is that I remember when I first started going out in Vancouver, so we're talking like late 90s, early 2000s, there was still like a pretty healthy number of people who were maybe like a little bit older, more mature, and yeah. who had been going out for like a number of years. But it's like it wouldn't have been totally unusual to to like see people of a, of like, you know, of an older generation, let's say, and, and for there to be a little bit of like intermingling kind of going on. And then, 
sort of, I think around that same time too, when, when so much shifted and everything started to become very centralized around Granville Street and, you know, the city basically, you know, starting in the 2000s aimed to create an entertainment district where all the nightclubs and all the venues, they wanted them to be really localized there. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and I'm not saying that that necessarily caused people of like a previous generation to just like stop going out altogether, but it did start to feel like, um, I don't know, just some of the sort of mixing that might have happened previously and some of the, you know, diversity that you might have seen previously started to, it started to be trickier for that kind of stuff to happen. And yet, despite that, and yet despite that, like I remember going to an event at Open Studios in East Vancouver and, and it being like a packed warehouse party. And I was like, who are all these cool people and where, like what, this is, has this, how long has this been going on for? And that was probably around that time, let's say very early 2000s, maybe twenty. 11 or something like that. So there was still mm-hmm. stuff happening, but it just started to become, I think, a little bit more scattered, uh, like, or not as frequent. But it was, mm-hmm. it sounds like it was still out there. And I mean, also, like, again, looking at your bio and just as, you know, how I've known you, like, you've just consistently always stayed involved with what's going on, wherever that may be happening. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I was very fortunate to kind of still be involved and still. You know, it's funny. Every time I think about this, it's kind of, you know, I don't you know what Madonna says. Madonna says this thing that, like, how does she stay relevant? She basically is a chameleon. She can kind of just sort of change mm-hmm. whatever that's sort of happening. And I think you have to do that um, in a way to sort of adapt to what's going on. Mm-hmm. And coming back to what you're saying with Granville Street, um, I have to say that Granville Street, like, centralizing everything to Granville Street definitely was part of the catalyst Mm. to help change the scene um it actually created um like you were saying like a different group of people that wasn't diverse and i think you can i think that's almost like uh, the statement that was said around the world in terms of club culture Mm. and how um that particular music you know edm uh drove a look that ed hardy look do you know what i mean Mm. like everybody was this bro kind of thing and it wasn't about community or, or age and I remember um, there was one thing that you just sort of said that was key there was diversity and age was there was a, a wide range of people it wasn't just geared to young 20 year old people it was sort of like yeah. you see people that in their 50s uh, that would be still kind of going out and, and everything else but um, definitely uh, that changed what we saw in Vancouver and and thank God for places like Open Studios that sort of kind of kept me inspired too. Mm-hmm. Sort of like saying, you know, like, great, like, at least this is sort of happening. Um, even places like Gorgamesh, to be honest with you, um, you know, uh, that still kind of kept that that culture alive and yeah. kind of kept you inspired to do stuff. And Gorgamesh was a bit of an anomaly to me. So to, to people listening who, like, don't necessarily know some of these, like, you know, places or locations in Vancouver. I mean, Vancouver is, is is such an interesting and unique city. Lots of people have heard of it or they know of it because of like the 2010 Olympics or whatever, um, you know, but the centralized Granville Street Entertainment District is basically one of the main thoroughfares downtown that yeah. there was a lot of nightlife traditionally going back even 50, 60 years. It was where lots of the sort of like neon lights in Vancouver. Vancouver was super famous for, for that at one point in time. Um, and then so beginning in the 2000s, that's where they, the city consciously made it decision to really focus nightlife there and to try to just you know 
I think, grant permits exclusively, you know, for, for new venues to sort of open up or for this sort of turnover to happen with the venues that already existed there. If they were going to close, they were going to have to reopen it. You know, that's where you could open a new venue. And then Gorgamish sort of showed up and Gorgamish was an after hours. And, and Vancouver didn't have a lot, you know, in terms of the after hours scene per se that sort of dwindled as the 2000s were going along. But I remember Gorgamish opened probably mid-2000s, I want to say. Yeah, they're about to, uh, they actually celebrated their 17-year anniversary. What? In yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, it's funny to admit this, G, but I've never actually been to Gorgamish. And so even though I was going out in Vancouver, I know even though I was going out in Vancouver during that time, that's probably around the time that I started to become a little bit more health conscious. And even though I still <laughs> would go out, it yeah. was a little trickier for me to stay out past, like, you know... 2 a.m. and I would say now my cutoff is like midnight, but Gorgamish <laughs> stays open all, all, all night. Gorgamish is an after hours. It's open until basically the sun comes up, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, because they were open. They start opening at two o'clock, so there's no way you were going to be going to a place at 2 a.m. <laughs> I wake up now at five o'clock often and like go for a run. Gee, that's my life now. <laughs> I think it was so amazing to think about that. I remember just coming out of Gorka Mission at, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning, and uh, you see people from Yale Town, like, just next level. And there was I, okay, like, momentary digression. I mean, there was, like, you know, my very dearest friend Preston and I rolling out of the world after hours <laughs> in our, like, full club kid looks that we've had on since, you know, 7 p.m. the night before. It's now 7 a.m. Sunday morning, and we're, like, rolling out into the broad daylight <laughs> from the world after hours. You know, this is an earlier point in time anyways, and just that, like, you know, ooh, get into a cab, quick, don't let the sun hit you. <laughs> that's, what I love, that's what I love about those cabs sitting outside the, the world in Gorgamesh and those places, because they know that people are just like, escape route. <laughs> <laughs> like, going back to what you are talking about with Gorgamesh, like, yeah, the thing about people don't understand or even know um, is that it started out as a queer space. Like, I mean, not completely, but it was definitely open to the queer nightlife and culture. I mean, Simone used to be the host outside the door. Wow. Yeah. Simone, a very famous drag queen in Vancouver. Yeah. It's just really interesting how it sort of started there, where it kind of sort of changed, you know, throughout the years. But yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, a lot of people um, from the scene haven't been there, but probably, I don't think they even realize how welcome and opening it was to uh, the queer culture. And so you'd been involved with with Gorgamish sort of virtually throughout that whole time, right? I mean, I remember you were DJing there. Yeah, like Leanne, I actually opened, I opened up for, um, Leanne and I did uh, a night there like a long time ago. I can't remember who she was opening up for, but uh, yeah, I had a chance to DJ at Gorgamish on the old mixer, the old little round knobby mixers, which was fantastic. Wow. Uh, and then just recently, um, in the last few years, was able to um, throw an event few events actually for a few years there called Dispatch, which was which was inspired uh, from a trip that I went to uh, Berlin and seeing as you know that city, which is basically a seventy-two hour party. <laughs> I've, I've heard this, but I have not been to Berlin either. I'm I'm it's crazy to admit that I have not been. When you go, you know it's just it, it kind of it kind of supports the scene. Um, that I've seen here in terms of the DIY and the underground culture. And it's a, it seems to be on a, a bigger scale. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and, and it's amazing when you can see, you know, a place that was a, a community center and you're partying in a, a pool where the bar mm. is literally at the deep end. Um, and just, you know, I remember it was with uh, Dickie Doo one night and we went to an event. I think it was at 
I think it was what, 7 o'clock at night and on a Sunday, and Mayor had already been, you know, the party had started Friday. Uh, so that was kind of next level to sort of be there, you know, on the third day and still see that people that may be still there. But yeah, I just, I was really inspired by my trip and, and going to Bergheim and uh, thought, you know, what would be cool is to have an existing place like Gorgamesh that was already doing, you know, a late night and see if we can actually open earlier rather than two o'clock and see if we can actually open at 11 o'clock. And um, that was sort of how the nine-hour party started um, for a few years. Not to mention, I got to go back to this little geeky point of how it all started. One of my, you know, uh, bosses at work, because, you know, my background is tech, um, you know, they like listen to all sorts of music as you're programming. And I remember he was listening to uh, Robert Babbage and he was like, oh, wouldn't that be amazing to, you know, have him come here? And I said, well, yeah, you can totally do that. And he was looking at me like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, all you got to do is just call the agent and and say, hey, I've got X amount of dollars and I've got a place and this can happen. And he was kind of blown away by the fact of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's how it all started. I said, okay, well, great. Well, if you're really interested in doing that, let's get it. Let's, let's ha- let it happen. Let's have it. You know, let's make it happen. And yeah. So, yeah, we threw our first event um, at uh, the Waldorf. And it was a three-room Waldorf, uh, three-room party where we had Dave Angel and, uh, you know, various local uh, DJs, uh, Jay Douglas, uh, Joel Armstrong, um, Nancy Drew, uh, just to name a few. And then we had the after party at Gorgamesh. And um, because the party was so successful, um, we sat down and had a meeting and that's how Dispatch started. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, you really don't know how things are going to start or begin. And it's kind of, sometimes you take a chance and risk. And that's how it happened. And uh, we ended up throwing um, three years of this party, including uh, a couple of Pride uh, weekend events there, which was amazing to have that opportunity to do that. Um, and, you know, being inspired um, just from all the, like, Gene Ferris and Kenny Glasgow and um, and having those opportunities to bring them to a place like Organesh and to bring that party up to the next level, it was, it was an amazing opportunity that I totally grateful for. Incredible. And I was going to ask you actually sort of for, for some of your your highlights of, of your time throwing events or DJing. I mean, that sounds like one of them. Are there are there any others that spring to mind? Oh, yeah. Um, Blow Pony. Blow Pony is an amazing um, party with a purpose, I always like to say, because uh, Eric, um, you know, Heater is an amazing activist. Um and, uh, you know, she's been throwing this party for, I think, I think 13 years. And it's a once a month party uh, Saturday. And um, how I even got introduced to uh, Eric was uh, Jay Douglas was down there DJing. And we were, uh, there was a bunch of us um, that went down to just hang out in Portland and um, got introduced to the promoter then. He actually had Christine. Um, I don't know if many people are familiar with Christine you need to Google Christine because Christine, they are out of this world. And we can spell it too because it is kind of, it's unique spelling. It's C-H-R-I-S-T-E-E-N. I'm fairly certain it's the spelling, but. Yeah, so it's C-R-I-S-T-E-E-N-E. Okay. 
T-R-I-S-T-E-E-N-E. Correct? Yeah, correct. <laughs> they, are a, they are an unforgettable performer, hands down. I, I was introduced to Christine, I want to say backstage at uh, Rick Owens' show in Paris, maybe? Amazing. But I had wow. known about Christine before that, but Christine was definitely like hanging out backstage at Rick Owens. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was, that blew my mind in terms of this amazing, queer, weird culture. And what was so wonderful about Eric is that as soon as we got introduced, he just asked me, well, do you, you know, what can you play? And I just said, I play this. He goes, great, I'll book you next month. And I haven't looked back ever since. And with traveling with Eric, like I've been to Austin, Texas for Stargazer, where I met um, Big Frida and was you know, performing with them in Astra and, um, you know, San Francisco, Seattle, um, um, you know, Eugene, Oregon, Olympia. Uh, so it's just been an amazing joyride um, just seeing all these different, you know, live performers, the drag, um, and, you know, at every party, he always you know, he gets on the mic and will speak, you know, his truth of whatever happens to be happening. So a bunch of, you know, uh, quote-unquote straight people come rolling up into the party and if they start kind of flexing, like, I mean, Eric has literally stopped the music, you know, and just pointed out and said, like, you know, this is a queer party, recognize, um, you know, if you don't like it, you can leave, kind of type thing. And mm. so that was kind of a, a really one of my major highlights, um, Booking C.C. Penniston at Shine uh, uh, for Pride, that was next level. Next level. And I'll tell you, I'll never forget the day when we went to go pick up the airport. And, you know, we had that little sign, C.C. Penniston. And she come rolling up in this cat suit, you know, go chain around her waist. You know, during her walk, everybody's like, you know, who is she? You know, and... Uh, uh, they, that was amazing, and to hear her and to know how uh, you know how wonderful she is as a person, and just listening to her do sound check, and she was doing uh, a little bit of Rihanna with uh, Adele, and I was just like, that was just blew my mind. Uh, Simone Denny, uh, booking Simone Denny from Love Inc. Uh, for uh, an Electric Circus um, one year anniversary party at the Cobalt. Uh, that was that was next level. I was just saying to you know Patty, um, one of the owners, and that, actually Nezra, the other owner. I was saying, okay, great. You're gonna you want to do this one year party. You know what would be better to to do is to bring the actual people that sing the music. It's a '90s party. Let's bring Simone Denny. And the fact that she came was amazing. Uh, I honestly, I, I could still have goosebumps thinking about it. I will never forget when. She was singing, you know, you're a superstar, and she people were singing so loud that she couldn't even like. She, they were singing over her voice. Yeah, that was that was amazing. Um, having my first show, an artist, uh, the drag series that I did in 2005, was, which was a really huge um, highlight um, for me in terms of my career, just because of the wasn't expecting the amount of press. I mean, I, I am grateful to Michael G at 1.6 Gallery and, of course, um, you know, Roxanne for inspiring me and giving me the opportunity um, to do that show, and that was huge. Um, you're also, I mean, aside from being an incredible and legendary DJ in Vancouver, you're also an artist, like you're a visual artist as well. 
Yeah, yes. Um, yeah, it's something that a lot of people don't know um, about me, A, because um, I had to put that down, like my paintbrush down, because I was so busy, you know, throwing all these events and, and DJing and working my nine to five job that um, around 2000, like 2005 was like kind of like my last major show. And I would do, you know, commission work here and there, but um, sort of interesting and, you know, that it took COVID to actually get back into it again. Like I hadn't really done anything serious for a few years. And, you know, when this whole thing happened with COVID, it, um, I just literally put my headphones down and um, turned to, you know, my canvas. And, uh, you know, and because it was the right path, I'm kind of starting to get spiritual that way. Um, someone asked me to do a commission piece. And, um, and that's what I've been working on for the last six months. I mean, I can absolutely relate. I was living in New York and doing makeup and on a very sort of set path and with a certain set of goals and all this kind of stuff. And then, yeah, this has certainly forced, uh, this last year has forced a certain amount of reflection and redirection for many people. And in some cases, like tapping back into some skills that maybe were not at the forefront, you know, for quite some time and stuff. So, uh, like major props G it's so incredible because I had always known that you w did work as an artist as well as more involved in nightlife and as well as we're DJing back when I was like you know more heavily involved in Vancouver nightlife yes yeah so it, it was amazing sort of to to, to, to to be blessed to have that because a lot of these people that are um, that are visual artists they may not have the opportunity that I did um, mm -hmm. or just in terms of just believing in themselves who they are I mean that's kind of like when you're sort of coming back and talking about some of the highlights and when I think about you know, the opportunities that I had, like, um, like you know, going to Bushwick last year um, in New York for the, for the Bushwick Festival, which was amazing, and the Motrain event that I did um, for Black History Month, that's all about belief. That's, that is passion. Yeah. Um, and if you know who you are as an artist and you feel like you have something to say, there's nothing stopping you from making sure that that's being put out there. Yeah. And I just sort of feel that... Um, the reason why I've been around for a long time uh, and is because, you know, it's that message. It's because, uh, you know, th th I have a lot to say and that I, that for, for whatever reason, <laughs> um, I'm meant to be here. That's kind of the way how it sort of, you know, um, that's my drive. And when you talk to, when we're sitting going back and talking about myself and talking about my highlights, I, like I said, the universe, whatever it is, angels, I feel blessed to have the opportunities to be able to um, do this. Uh, well, and trust me when I say, I mean, I think you're so deserving and you just have a warmth and a radiance you always have as long as I've known you. And just the way that you've like been, you know, part of Vancouver Nightlife and stuff, it's been, uh, it's been really beautiful to watch. And we, we got to hang out that week that you were in New York. I mean, that was quite a special memory for me as well, spending time in, in New York in September when it's, like, kind of balmy. It's, like, one of my favorite times yeah. of the year in New York. Yeah, it was amazing. And I and I had a wonderful time with you, too, as well. It was so great to sort of just catch up and just hear your process and, you know, hear, you know, you, your life living, you know, in New York as an artist and... It was just so, so. It was amazing, just amazing to hear that. It was a ride and a half, Chief. 
<laughs> the movie and the book are going to be fierce. That's all I have to say <laughs> about that. I was going to say, where's that memoir? <laughs> I'm chipping away at it. I'm chipping away at it. Okay, so I want to. So I want to ask you too. I mean, COVID has completely turned upside down basically every aspect of of life, right? In this past nine, ten months, and it's absolutely decimated many industries and many creative industries and nightlife in particular. I think it's been especially hard hit because we're we're not supposed to be gathering, right? And any sort of um, you know sort of sanctioned formal events in most parts of the world uh, are just not happening and have not been able to happen. But despite that, I was quite blown away to see, and I know that in Vancouver, in comparison to some other cities, because the you know the the rates of COVID were a little bit lower there than some other places. I know some stuff was still able to continue happening, which was really interesting to be honest with you. I mean, it's funny; it's a bit of a joke, but there you know researchers out there trying to link um, you know cannabis to preventing COVID. So I have a feeling that that might have been the cause of why you see why those numbers were low. But um, yeah. You know, it's interesting because when COVID happened, because and the way how it happened, and then and I'm not sure how it happened um, for you, it was kind of like you know we were allowed to have you know 250, and then the next week it went down to 50, and then the next week it was just like shut her down. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people were under the impression, and I know, and and a lot of it's based on their business model that at 50 people, how are we going to keep our doors open, especially if you have a venue? you know, 500 people, 250 people capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and because this was obviously so new to all of us, like, you know, all of a sudden your life is being shut down. We've got this, you know, flu or whatever you want to call it, a virus um, that we don't know how, like, if, the house, if it's killing people. So it was just a really interesting time because how can you think about being creative when you don't mm-hmm. know if you're going to live? Yeah. And, um, it, it was interesting. I actually had a chance to walk the streets of Vancouver during this time, uh, especially in the initial start of the, the uh, COVID in the first two weeks, and see the city empty. And seeing the city empty, especially Gramble Street, um, which is normally crazy on a Saturday night, uh, really kind of made me just have a quiet, peaceful moment mm. and just sort of think to myself, you know, that it, it soon will pass. Mm-hmm. And... You know, there were other people working during this time, like um, BMF was, uh, Vancouver New York Festival was uh, still, uh, you know, still planning as usual. And they were sort of thinking outside the box. And uh, Nick, um, who reached out to me, uh, you know, who's a senior uh, project manager, uh, had asked, um, you know, if I'd be interested in throwing an event, uh, you know, in August. And... I was kind of like, okay, is this really going to happen? <laughs> we were just like, you know, going through all these phases, like phase one, you know, maybe we'll open up to this. And, and still having, which is interesting, still seeing people online, you know, get it, stay at home, you know, forget about opening up venues. Like, we don't, like, who wants to be in a venue anyways? All this stuff, um, which was really kind of disheartening. It almost kind of felt like the arts were, weren't, no one cared about the arts and they didn't think that that, that was essential anymore. Mm-hmm. And so thank God that, you know, Nick was still working and still sort of active and they were sort of thinking about how to reinvent their festival because they usually have a mural festival um, in August. 
And so when he'd asked me um, that maybe a possibility, I said, okay, this is okay. Well, we'll just wait and see. I'm, I'm in the middle of painting right now. So I can't even think about that. And I know that a lot of people were doing online events, and which was great because that was a really huge thing for people to do, especially because, you know, as artists, we need to outlet. We need to be creative. We need to do something. Yeah. Um, and, you know, those online events were cute and it was great. But for me as a DJ, and I'm sure a lot of people can to test that as a performer or whatever, there's something about the connection between the artist and the performer that you just, it's something you cannot deny. And so I really wasn't interested in doing any of the online events. And I was really happy that they were there anyways because they did give people a sort of sense of normalcy, quote unquote. Um, so seeing like live events, who knows? Like, I mean, I wasn't even thinking about that, but the fact of the matter is that, you know, the event, online events were happening. And then once my brain started clicking and, and like I said, Nick was an amazing person to have around because he was so in it still. And as he was being inspired, he was inspiring me. And, you know, I was walking around on the seawall and I started seeing after the first couple of weeks, people started feeling comfortable of being outside. And then I was thinking, well, why can't we just have a pop-up? Like, why can't I just roll up with a bunch of speakers in the park? You know, everybody's social distancing and continue to do that. So then my mind started, started thinking. And then I saw myself going, okay, great. Like, I'm still feeling inspired. Just figure out a way how we can still get people to gather or to at least have an event. And uh, when Nikki approached me to do um, By Felicia, which is uh, a monthly drag um, event that I've been doing now for about four years. Um, and I was like, okay, well, tell me how this is going to work. And um, he says, well, we're going to do an outdoor patio. And um, according to the city, the city is allowing us to have 50 people gathered as long as everybody's social distance. I was just like, what? Okay, cool. Hmm. So I was lucky to sort of have that um, as an inspiration to sort of keep that going. It was great, honestly. You know, even though people were hesitant on going out, um, the fact that it was outside, the fact that people can wear the mask and all, they did all the, you know, rules around that uh, to make sure that everybody felt safe, people were inspired to come. And we had two shows, um, an early show and a later show. So it was 100 people um, per week, which they had like a drag series. They had uh, it was seven days, which they had jazz, um, live music and comedy. Um, so they were one of the first people that were doing a festival during mm. COVID, which was amazing. Wow, yeah. And so that was the Vancouver Mural Festival, which runs in the summer in Vancouver. Yes. It so runs um, during the summer to like, uh, I think it's the beginning of August to the end of August, about three weeks. And it was a ticketed event. And so part of the reason I know about this is because I actually happened to be in Vancouver during this time. I was visiting family when it was still on the sort of safer side of things to be traveling. And I was actually on Vancouver Island, but I knew that the Vancouver Mural Festival was having these events happening. And I was really impressed. I was really blown away. I mean, it was a ticketed event and it was one of the few sort of like formal and, and like legitimate and sort of sanctioned things that I that I knew of happening like that last summer. It was pretty impressive. Yes, I agree. I agree. And it was interesting because I could see that there were some people pooping it. There was people that were going, oh my God, I can't believe they're doing an 18-day 18 18 festival. Like, you know, what's this? But the city, cause the, you know, the, the, the city of Vancouver was starting to do some initiative. And I called, 
you know, BC before BC, which I call before COVID. Mm. Um, they were really pushing a lot of initiatives, which is the first in the city because, you know, I've been involved with so many different events, you know, uh, as an artist through Culture Days too as well. And I sort of found that there wasn't, there wasn't as much attention to BC as there was other provinces, especially in Ontario and Quebec in terms of the arts. So to see, you know, uh, last year uh, in June that the city was really looking to do some initiatives around that and to activate the city and to, you know, um, to do a lot of funding. Um, I thought that was great. And to have this event um, sanctioned by the city, because we actually had a letter that said this was approved by the city. Just And it was great because we had to show this to the performers and everything like that. A, because we, to make them know that, hey, you know, people are not going to be... It was, it was an interesting time, because you almost kind of felt like if, if you did that event, you know, you almost kind of like felt like you were going to be blacklisted. But to show the performers that, hey, you know what, the city is approving this. So, you know, Vancouver Neal Festival are doing, you know, dotting their T's, I mean, crossing their T's and, and dotting their I's. It's, in, it's, it's putting a plan in front of them to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. And the city approved it. So, yeah, it was a ticketed event. Uh, it was very inexpensive uh, for those uh, people that, could, you know, at the time that could afford to come. But I think, you know, what was wonderful is that people needed it. I've never mm-hmm. seen so much excitement. Um, and excitement for people to just be out and see people again. Yeah, and, and you know, and to describe it too, because I did look into it a little bit, I was like quite interested in it. There was, you know, ample amounts of space at the, the spots that this was going to be happening. And it was sort of, you know, like it was really s- sort of separated in terms of like where the actual physical areas were that the tickets would get you access to. But within those sort of separated areas, there was like tons and tons of room and it was an outdoor thing. And the numbers of tickets, I think, were kept quite, you know, quite, they were set at certain numbers and stuff. So, like, to me, it all did seem like it would be a safe, the safest way possible to have that kind of an event with some music and, you know, allowing people to to not necessarily gather, but, like, be in proximity of other people, you know, safely. For sure, definitely. I mean, it was, it was, it was really cute. Like, I mean, it, they had, like, sort of almost turf-like grass. It was almost kind of being in a... Um, in the place in the Hamptons or something, you know, with hmm. this lovely, lush kind of, you know, picnic. And, I mean, uh, you know, Nick and Rio and the team at uh, Public Disco and BMF, they did a great job in making people feel comfortable and not giving you that sense of stigma. Like, they had umbrellas at each of the tables. Um, you had, obviously, with the six feet from everybody's tables, um, you know, only could actually book tables within your pod. Uh, even the distance from the stage to the audience, um, was again measured that the, uh, even if the performance came down onto the onto the floor, they had to be six meters. So it was well done um, with amazing plants and and you know flowers and uh, yeah, it was just it was lovely. And you couldn't go to the bar, so you were being served by the waitress or the waiter. So it was just a, a really nice, relaxed uh, atmosphere that you didn't even realize that that was going on in the background. That's, that sounds so delightful right about now. I mean, there's just this nostalgia to a lot of this stuff that I couldn't have predicted when I started doing this podcast and sort of talking about nightlife history and reflecting on nightlife history that it would actually feel almost impossible to imagine, right? Like some of the ways that we used to experience nightlife now just it feels unimag- like it just feels unimaginable. So but, you know, this kind of thing, I, it certainly gives me some hope and some optimism, and especially in, you know, the summer months and seeing with how things are potentially starting to 
hopefully shift positively in the next few months, six months kind of a thing now that there is a vaccine that's being distributed. Um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm an eternal optimist. I'm always looking for these little glimmers of potential and possibility and stuff. And so this to me, it sounds exciting. I'm so excited that that's what we could look forward to. And for those that are like, you know, promoters, um, or just performers that are just sort of afraid about this stuff, just know that, you know, I've thrown, you know, at least, you know, and been part of and curate, you know, you know, three or four events, uh, during COVID. Uh, and as long as, you know, the rules are there and, you know, everybody's doing their due diligence and, um, you know, I know a lot of it's probably going to be focused on outside, but one of the, one of the things that we're working on is to move it inside eventually, because mm. especially, you know, Vancouver, like, I mean, restaurants are open, right? So you could, people are still going to restaurants. Um, I, for me, I don't see the difference of, that versus going into a venue or seeing live show or drag performance and having and sitting at tables um, and being, you know, and then being served by a waiter or a waitress, uh, you know, or a server to come to you. So, you know, it, it, it's, it's some of the things that, you know, we're working on uh, into, you know, getting things going and uh, hopefully, um, you know, I know that people are, are starving for this. I, it's something that I see consistently online that I wish this was happening. I missed this, you know, mm-hmm. what, would I, what would it take you know, for me to get there? And um, I think, you know, if we, you know, if people are respecting rules, which they have to be honest with you for the most part, like, you know, mm-hmm. I, we haven't had any issues at all. I think people are just grateful and thankful that we are taking the time to put this together. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, and I guess that does also bring me to the question of what what you envision for the future of Vancouver nightlife, and and let's like let's maybe imagine that it could be a, a post COVID time. Uh, you know that that let's say that the, the sort of current pandemic situation that we're dealing with is somewhat resolved. What would your vision be for the future of Van- Vancouver nightlife? Um, diversity and more inclusivity, and. Uh, a more education and community uh, driven based uh, nightlife and what I mean by that uh, is that I feel that before um, it was driven by drugs and alcohol and Mm. all the whole idea of the culture and the music and to dance and to gather was lost and and you you hear of this because of the meeting movements that were happening in our industry Um, we never and and I know you remember this Jordan like when we went to party, or we went to, it wasn't about a party. It was about, like, I mean, a lot of our friends that we all know each other is from the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, it's from being, um, and I feel like that is kind of lost now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I envision uh, for, you know, for the future um, is to have a lot more diversity, marginalized groups getting together and having education around culture and gathering, not just, because a lot of people are sober now, which is a wonderful thing, and I love that. And I think that, you know, some of the fears around, you know, the nightlife culture going back. And I know a lot of people are like, oh, well, who cares about the bars? I didn't like them anyway, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, you know what, to be honest with you, people are sober. So mm-hmm. that's us go talking about conversations around that. Um, and why does, it, why does a, an event have to have be driven by alcohol and that be the focus versus appreciating and building up, you know, diversity groups? Um, and as well as people that are sober, like let's start, you know, in, encouraging that behavior, having a lot more uh, installations, visual arts, um, and combining the two um, and have it multifaceted, I think would, 
be a great um, way to start and, and get away from the whole meat market um, scene, which I mean, to be honest with you, I've been involved with like, the alternative scene and the DIY scene, as you know, for a very long time. And, and that is very thriving, very big time in Vancouver um, before COVID. Uh, it seemed like that was the underground scene was sort of driving a lot of great things that are happening. So I'm looking forward to sort of seeing a lot more of those happening, a lot more activations around that, a lot more um, outdoor events and how we could um, do a lot more festivals, um, especially in Vancouver. And for the city to, you know, encourage more people to be involved, uh, you know, by giving those permits, you know, and Mm -hmm. being a lot more open for that. And I think with COVID, I think it's kind of given, allowed that. I mean, we started opening up they started encouraging all these different patios around the city. I mean, that should have been done a long time ago. These things happen in Portland where there's a lot of indoor-outdoor venues. So perhaps that's where we're going to go. And I'm all for being outside. And if we can have Stanley Park uh, as an outdoor venue or Sunset Beach or English Bay as an as a venue, as an option, oh, that'd be wonderful. Well, they, I sure hope that they're talking to you because you have a ton of great ideas and you are, like, on the ground and in Vancouver. So... They best be adding you to that committee. Amen. Is what I have to say. But also, I mean, I'm so there with you. Vancouver is as like as a city, and especially within Canada, um, which the winters can be harsh. Let's just put it. Let's just put it down there as it is. But Vancouver is sort of this anomaly. There's actually really. It's like such a milder climate on the west coast, and. Uh, and yeah, I'm I'm in total agreement. Like I think that the patio situation, uh, there, there there could have been room for maybe some improvement some time ago. Yeah. Um, but also, I, I love what you're describing, which is you know this combination of like art and experience and music and and just all these different elements that could be combined. And one of the things I wanted to ask about, which you sent me a video link to, and I was so impressed by. I was like, what is this? Was this light installation combined with the DJ setup on the roof of a building? And it wasn't Uh-oh. for a crowd per se, but it was as though, you know, an event was being set up with the DJ, with the light set up, with the sound system and everything. But then there was no crowd there and it looked so incredible. Oh, that was amazing. That was, again, Nick, uh, pretty genius, I tell you, uh, Nick Hollinette. Uh, public disco in the sky and that was uh, very inspired by Circla um, which you know has all these different um, places where these artists were performing I think Fatboy Slim did some kind of airport hangar uh, and Rufus uh, DeSoul was uh, you know near the Joshua Tree or something like that and um, Nick had uh, you know talked to me about this that he sort of envisioned to to have this uh, like uh, sort of live, like live PA with lights on, uh, you know, on a rooftop in Vancouver. They had been talking to uh, Bentall um, Center, and they were totally into the idea. And my old company, uh, believe it or not, uh, was one of the sponsors, which is awesome. Like we were trying to uh, incorporate technology with this live feed, and we were going to run it through Microsoft because that was sort of my that's my old job is my tech thing uh, was um, selling Microsoft and uh, they wanted to be on board as I mentioned to you before they've always support me in the arts and they 
uh, said, yeah, they wanted to be one of the sponsors along with the Downtown Business Association in Bento. Uh, and uh, and appeared was public, uh, was, you know, public just in the sky where we were on top of Bento one uh, and seeing Vancouver in this beautiful light with uh, light installations. Uh, there was a very... The only people that were on, on the uh, roof were obviously people that were involved, um, all the techs and the PA. So that was it. And uh, we had Yusu and Sobata uh, perform and with a live drone, um, with the drone feed. And that was fantastic. So for those that want to check this out, it's uh, publicdisco.ca. Amazing. Yeah, I'm so blown away. I remember meeting Nick when I was still living in Vancouver. Uh he was probably just coming up on the scene. I think he was like super young. Uh, and I know he's done some really cool stuff with public disco. Uh, like they were doing outdoor parties or events in like alleyways and stuff like that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about public disco, what those guys are, are up to, what they're all about? Yeah. Um, public disco, um, Nick Cullinette and Ben Park, that's their brainchild. And I, it came out of like, in, like sort of, Obviously, uh, and that, and this is something that sort of happens that a lot of people can speak about in terms of um, losing venues uh, and places for us to sort of have events. And uh, what they did was actually take unutilized spaces like plazas and laneway and create these amazing discos. And with these discos, they they had everything from live PA to DJs to uh, activities for the kids. Um, you know, just, you know, in terms of face painting. And at some of the events, they actually had um, a couple of independent uh, vendors that were, so you were able to do a little bit of shopping. So it was just one of those events um, that were able to kind of survive <laughs> in terms of what the public yeah. in the sky during uh, COVID. Um, and one of those events that actually, for me, that inspires me because they actually think outside the box. And, and for that, um, you know, Nick is kind of one of those people that, and Finn, um, are those people that actually kind of inspire me. Amazing. And so we talked on this at the very beginning of our interview and it's something that I think is definitely worthy of a little bit of conversation. And so you, you mentioned initially, right? And I would, and I would concur with you that Vancouver does not necessarily, it's not necessarily known for having a, a super robust, um, you know, black community per se. And yet you have stood out always as this like amazing shining example and just, you know, living your life and doing your thing. Um, I'm curious if you feel a connection to or a lack of connection to, to a community, just given that 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 is the the case in Vancouver. Great question. Great question. I felt like, to be honest with you, um, because at one point when I was a kid growing up, there was a lot of black people, Um, you know, in downtown Vancouver, when we talk about the old uh, nightlife, there was at least four or five black clubs. So mm-hmm. we had Club Dynasty, we had um, with the warehouse, we had Sh- It's a Secret, which turned into uh, Ginger 62. Oh, wow. Um, so there there was a lot of uh, black clubs, and I did see a lot of people, you know, people with my, my skin, and I don't know if that's because there was a lot of influence from the United States, or whatever that was, there that was happening uh, as the years gone by you know you definitely feel you know alone and i and the joke was was like oh you know you're the fifth five black people that we know in the city and and you know it's as funny as it could be it's you you laugh but you're still left with this kind of feeling of 
you know, just weirdness. And sure. for the longest time, there wasn't any, there wasn't anything. There wasn't any, like, there would be hip-hop events, but were, were there black DJs or were there um, <laughs> people, people of color showing up? And they weren't. Yeah. That was a huge thing, you know? Yeah. Um, so having the opportunity, and it's interesting that you, that you asked me this question because it was a couple of years ago, and I talked to uh, Jen Mickey at uh, XY about, you know, throwing um, this event, you know, for, you know, Black History Month in February because I felt like, you know, I was growing apart from my community. And the only way that I felt like I was going to be connected was to throw an event. And not only that, just to have it in the, you know, gay and queer community because I sort of felt like, you know, the community was very white, you know? Yes. there wasn't any kind of focus around black queers or, or anybody, you know what I mean? I just, mm-hmm. I, I just felt like that was missing. And, you know, we didn't get a chance to do the event at XY. Um, we ended up doing it at uh, Eastside Studios, which is an amazing, huge uh, queer run uh, space um, out in East Bam. Mm-hmm. And uh, for Black History Month, uh, uh, it was called Motrain. So it was a combination of, you know, inspiration from Motown so we had Desiree Dawson, uh, Naomi Cromwell, and uh, Larissa Saunders, who were like almost like Diana and the Diana Ross and the Supremes. Mm-hmm. And then we also had um, some drag performers: Kendall Gender, uh, um, Carmela Barr, uh, Buster Terry, um, just to name a few, uh, that came and did drag. And then we also um, partnered up with the Black. Lives Matter, and we actually had a speaker from Black Lives Matter uh, to come and speak uh, there as well, which was which was wonderful uh, to combine, you know, drag with live music, and then to have like education and to, mm-hmm. and to take space. So for me, it was really important uh, to have that event, and it was something that I wanted to kind of continue on um, moving forward. Incredible! I love it. Oh my gosh, G. It's it's always been so refreshing to talk to you, but um, but I I definitely get I get a sense of vision for for the future and also just like a continuation of the amazing work that you've done and will continue to do. Oh, thank you so much <laughs> for saying that. It's weird talking about yourself because you know you don't think about the things that you've done because you're so in it. And Absolutely. When you stop and this is, it's interesting that this year that I've been asked to take a look at my past mm. um, and talk about it. And, and, and when, I, when I have been doing this in the last couple of times, especially with this time, is that I'm like, wow, I've done a lot. And even you saying that to me, you've always been around. You've always been there. You've always been consistent. You've done a lot. And I'm just like, oh, wow, I can feel that I've contributed without just, you know, talking. I have to say just such a huge thank you for taking time to talk to me, G. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much, Jordan, for and Michael, of course, uh, for thinking about me. Uh, as, as usual, I love talking to you. I feel like I feel like there's no time that's passed. Absolutely. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with G. I was certainly inspired to hear about what's been going on in Vancouver despite the many challenges of throwing events there. Even just talking to G, I was reminded he just radiates positivity. A quick update as of this recording, and as is the case currently in many parts of the world, 
our physical gallery and event spaces remain closed to the public due to COVID-19 related restrictions. But Never Apart remains committed to our mission of initiating social change and spiritual awareness through cultural programming. We will continue to launch seasonal exhibitions, which are accessible online as virtual tours, as well as artist talks, our monthly magazine, and so much more. Check out our website, neverapart.com, and find us on social channels at neverapartmtl. Be sure to leave a comment or a review on whichever platform you're listening through, either SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And you can also find me on Instagram at Jordan King Archive. Until next month, stay inspired.